The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 21 The Governor Ahoy. One warm, sunny evening in the summer of 1912, I was walking up and down the garden at Edith Carnot's house in Streatham, idly working on a woodbine which was keeping the midges at bay, when a familiar voice hailed me. What ho, Arthur? I looked round, and there, beaming from ear to ear, and waving his precious boss of the plains hat in the air, was none other than young Freddy Carno, Jr. "'Freddy!' I shouted, and strode over to shake his hand warmly. "'How splendid to see you! So you're back from the States!' "'Indeed,' my young friend grinned. "'We sailed last week, and I'm only just recovering. I didn't get a wink of sleep all the way across, thinking about icebergs. Of course, the Titanic had gone down just a couple of months earlier, which had been enough to put a chill into the bones of anyone who had to make that sea-crossing.' "'Imagine my surprise when I came over to visit Mamma, "'and here's you with your feet under the table. "'She's been very kind. "'Without her I should have been quite destitute. "'She's a brick,' Freddy nodded. "'So, you know what I've been doing, "'but what exciting things have you been up to, eh?' "'I'm an artist, of sorts,' I said. "'Oh, stop it. "'You sound just like Chaplin,' Freddy said dismissively. "'He seemed a good deal more confident these days, I suddenly noticed, "'more assertive than the young lad who had wanted so desperately to be one of us. "'Now listen, what are you doing tomorrow?' Not much, I shrugged. All the company have been invited onto the governor's houseboat for the day. You must come along. It should be quite a party. Oh, I don't know if I should just invite myself along to a do of the governor's, I said, doubtfully, although a bell was ringing somewhere in my head. That phrase, all the company, did that mean? Surely it did. Tilly? You're not inviting yourself. I'm inviting you, and I won't take no for an answer. So it's settled. And so, the next day, Freddy and I made our way out of town, past Hampton Court Palace, and along the bank of the River Thames towards East Molesey. We passed some houseboats moored here and there, some resembling the longboats that plied the canals, others more like little floating bungalows, with the residents taking the sun on the flat roofs between their narrow pipe chimneys. Nothing we saw, though, prepared us for our first glimpse of the Astoria, Fred Carno's pride and joy. It was enormous, Two whole stories high, nestling against Tags Island in the middle of the river, against a backdrop of tall trees waving gently in the summer breeze. The lower level was very grand, all polished wood and painted ironwork, with alternating picture windows and nautical portholes. At the stern, a curving staircase led up to the top level, which was opened beneath a sun canopy. Ornate ironwork railings ran the length of the boat, with strings of coloured lights hanging from the upper arches. From the river bank we could hear the merry chatter of dozens of people, the clink of glasses, the occasional popping cork, and there was clearly a substantial event in progress. He simply asked them to build him the grandest houseboat ever seen on the Thames, Freddy said admiringly. How do we get over there, I wonder? A short struggle along the bank brought us to a little wooden jetty where a wizened old codger was waiting with a rowboat. We persuaded him to ferry us across to the island, and he grumbled the whole way about how busy he'd been, gasping and gurning the while, exaggerating the effort the job was costing him in the hope of increasing his tip. "'Watch out for icebergs!' Freddy chirped halfway across. 
but didn't raise even the faintest hint of a smile from our put-upon pilot. He dropped us on the tip of the island, and we followed a little footpath of trampled grass through the trees until we came to the gangplank connecting the governor's floating palace to the shore. Apparently, he wanted room for a ninety-piece orchestra to play on the upper deck, Freddy confided as we stepped aboard. Now how often do you think a ninety-piece orchestra is going to drop round? There were musicians atop the Astoria just then, as it happens, but only a little quartet. The rest of the space was occupied by Carno Comics, enjoying a sumptuous buffet lunch in the warm summer sunshine. Fred Kitchen was there, probably Carno's senior number one, getting around the outside of a vol-au-vent or two. There was Sid Chaplin, resplendent in a white blazer and boater, also tucking in, a couple of stray crumbs clinging to his drooping moustache. Sean Glenville was there, the first number one I ever saw in action, back when I was a super on Won't Detain You, the spectacular sketch about hijinks on board an ocean liner. And George Roby was a special guest, chasing a quail egg around his plate with a silver fork. Behind them, a bevy of lesser mortals waited their turn at the groaning board. I noticed to my amusement that they'd arranged themselves according to their place in the comedy hierarchy. A clutch of number twos were ready to serve themselves next, including Johnny Doyle, dressed in a man's garb for once, and then so on down to the also-rans and seat-fillers who would make do with scraps and leftovers once the giant beasts of the comedy jungle had had their fill. I spotted the American company grouped together near the riverside railings, just as they spotted me. "'Arthur,' said Emily Seaman, "'wonderful to see me, isn't it?' I slapped a frozen smile on my features at hearing that one again, which amused Bert Williams. Alf Reeves was there, and Amy, and the Palmers, and the Siemens, Mike Asher, Albert Austin, Bert Williams, and Charles Griffiths, as well as Ted Banks and Charles Carden, the replacements for myself and Stan. I greeted them all warmly, and indulged in a little handshaking and backslapping. No sign of Charlie, though, nor of Tilly. But there was Carno himself, proudly showing off the features of his newest toy to anyone who'd listen, sporting a peaked nautical cap adorned with a little golden anchor. When the governor clapped his eyes on me, they narrowed somewhat. He gave a little cough, which usually meant trouble. "'Hello, governor,' I said brightly, trying to smooth over the awkwardness of the moment. "'Mr. Dando, are you a member of this company, then?' "'Well, I... uh, that is...' "'He most certainly is,' Freddy Jr. said, putting his arm around my shoulders. "'Now let's get you a drink, shall we, Arthur?' Carno frowned, and I braced myself for some withering remark, but it never came. Instead, he looked genuinely puzzled, as though he'd actually forgotten whether or not I was still in his employ. Maybe Billy Ritchie was right, and he'd taken his eye off things at the fun factory in recent months. "'Do you want this pork pie?' Amy said to me. "'My eyes were bigger than my stomach.' I took her plate from her. "'Is... Charlie expected? I asked. Oh, you know young Mr. Chaplin, she tutted. If there's a train to be missed, or a deadline, or an invitation, he'll miss it. Mike Asher strolled over with a glass and a grin, dapper as ever in his sharply creased flannels and a straw boater, somehow managing to convey both that he was relaxing and that he was ready for any main chance that might present itself, and we leaned on the railing looking out over the river. So, Mike, how was the land of opportunity? I said. Ha! he said glancing around to see who might overhear, then lowering his voice. I'm not going back there in a hurry, I'll tell you that. Why? What's wrong? Mike sighed. Lucia, that's what. That lovely burlesque girl of yours. Yeah, she's not mine, mate. I took a bit of a shine to her, that's all. I remember, and she to you, if I'm not mistaken. Mike's face took on a haunted look. Yes, well, when we went back to Chicago the second time, after you and Stan had gone home, well, there she was again. She got a job back at the burlesque show, then. That's just it. She didn't. She was just there, waiting for me. Said she was madly in love with me and couldn't live without me. 
Ha, ha, ha. It's not funny, damn it. What did you do? Well, I felt I needed to be firm for her own good. Should you be telling me this? Not that. I didn't mean that. I couldn't afford to support her, could I? Well, you know what the pay was. You left because of it, didn't you? But as it turned out, she picked up some more burlesque work there pretty easily, so that week or two worked out well enough. Too well, actually, because that led her to believe that... Believe that what? That we could make a proper go of it, and, and after that all I heard about was how we should be engaged and married and settled down, and in the end I simply had to break with her. After how long? Oh, another two months, maybe three... All right, maybe I led her on a bit, but she was so lovely, and it was nice, you know, to have her around, even though she was a bit nuts. So then that was the end of it. Oh, no, 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 no. Not by a long chalk. Then she would turn up at the show, and I would see her in the audience. She wouldn't say anything, or try and see me, but she'd be there, just watching. Not every day, not every week even, but, you know, pretty regularly. I'd think she'd got over me, and then there she'd be again. It started to give me the willies. Ironically, I said. So, by the time we came to leave the States, I was really pretty relieved. But, you know, just as the boat was ready to leave New York, there Lucia was on the dock, and I was convinced she was going to try and come on board too. But, no, she just stood there with a sad look on her face, waving her handkerchief. Can you believe it? You are quite a catch, I said. Oh, do shut up, Mike said, thumping my upper arm with his fist. Anyway... The hounds of hell wouldn't drag me back there, because she'd know. I don't know how, but she'd know. He left me then to find more to drink, and I paused to take in the view. A little way downstream I noticed the ancient mariner was making another crossing in his rowing boat, two passengers in the stern. Nearest me was a dapper little gent in a fancy striped blazer and a straw boater with his back turned in my direction, and his companion was a girl in a green summer dress with a matching parasol. I watched as they reached the bank, and the little fellow stepped ashore. I couldn't see their faces, but something about the exaggerated courtliness with which he extended his hand to help the girl off the boat let me know with a sudden jolt that he was Charlie Chaplin. And then the sun struck the blonde curls of his lady friend, and my heart stood still, because it was Tilly. Of course it was. The rowboat set off back to the other side, and the two of them started off along the towpath towards the Astoria. She had her arm in his, and they were taking their time, chuckling away at some shared amusement or other. They make a lovely couple, don't they? said a voice at my elbow. It was Muriel Palmer. Like all married women of my acquaintance, she could hardly wait to pair everyone else off, as if to validate the choice she herself had made. All eyes seemed to be on them, and they knew it, as Charlie led Tilly up the gangplank and onto the boat. He brought her hand to his lips, and then moved towards the drinks table to fetch them both a glass of something. Tilly stepped across the deck to say hello to the company, with smiles and pecks on the cheek here and there, and then she spotted me and her eyes widened. "'Arthur, what a lovely surprise to see you. How have you been?' I was bursting to tell her everything that had happened since I last saw her. I knew she'd have loved the rummans from Rome, and I could have made her howl with laughter at the plaster-stilt egg disaster in Rotterdam, and I'd missed that laugh so much. I wanted to tell her, too, about becoming a pavement artist in Trafalgar Square, but suddenly it struck me that she and Charlie were so tight that telling her about my trials and tribulations was the same as telling him— and I wasn't at all sure I wanted him to know that things had not been going well. So I said, "'Fine, thank you, I've been fine. "'Have you seen anything of Stan?' "'Yes, from time to time our paths have crossed,' I said. "'But he's not with you today?' "'No, he's not, no.' "'Good heavens, is that Dando?' 
Charlie was with us, a glass of champagne held delicately in each manicured hand. It seemed to me that he'd said my name unnecessarily loudly, perhaps hoping that if my presence was noted by the right people I'd be ejected. "'Hello, Charlie,' I said. "'How's tricks?' "'Oh, life is splendid, isn't it?' he said, handing Tilly a glass and looking to her for confirmation. She smiled, nodded. "'Absolutely splendid. We have completed another two triumphant circuits of America, and now we're off to the Channel Islands for a month. Things could hardly be going better.' He snaked his free arm around Tilly's waist as if to emphasise the point. "'I'm glad to hear it,' I managed to force myself to say. "'After that, I'm hoping the Governor will send us back to America. England feels so small-time somehow, don't you think?' I gritted my teeth into a smile, and waited for him to inquire after my well-being in return, but instead I saw his tiny hand pull Tilly closer to him, in proprietorial fashion. "'Now, shall we see if these gannets have left us any lunch?' "'Oh, yes, let's. I'm starved,' Tilly said. As Charlie steered her away from me, she shot me a smile over her shoulder, and gave a helpless little shrug. I leaned back against the railing, dazzled and overwhelmed by seeing her again. Not only that, though, seeing her with him. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Chapter 22. Carno's Carcino. After lunch, Carno led us all off the Astoria and on to Tags Island. Behind the attractive screen of trees, the interior appeared to be a neglected and unkempt little wilderness. He announced that he had something to show us all, and so everyone present trotted dutifully along in his wake as he marched onwards like Professor Challenger exploring the lost world, the strand sensation at the time. Tags Island was shaped like a boat, and when we reached the prow, as it were, there was a large open area where some preliminary attempts at clearing some space seemed to have taken place. Carno held up his hand, indicating we should stop and gather round and wait for the stragglers at the rear to catch up. 
I was watching Tilly on the other side of the clearing, sandwiched between Charlie and his brother Sid, laughing as she received oily flattery from both chaplains at once. So I was rather taken by surprise when Carno himself sidled over to me, an avuncular beam all over his face. It was terrifying. "'Here he is,' he said. "'Here's the man I want to have a word with.' "'Really, Governor?' I said, taken aback. "'Oh, yes. Something we definitely need to discuss, you and I.' He reached an arm around me and clapped me on the shoulder. "'There is. Concerning your future,' Carno said, tapping the side of his nose in a conspiratorial fashion. "'Well, um, of course,' I stammered. "'I'd be happy to.' He seemed to be on the point of saying more, but then all at once he realised that his audience was now in situ, and he held a forefinger up in front of my face. "'Later,' he said, and winked. I watched his shiny shoes as he stepped up onto an upturned wooden crate, my heart pounding and the blood rushing in my ears. Carno wanted to talk to me. I experienced a quick moment of alarm when I suddenly thought he might have found out about me sleeping rough in the Carno omnibus over at the fun factory, but no, surely not, that was months ago. And anyway, didn't he say it was concerning my future that he wanted to speak to me? A future recalled to the fond embrace of the Carno organisation. I could hardly breathe. Ahem, Carno coughed and immediately had everyone's attention. "'Friends,' he began, "'thank you all for coming.' "'Thank you for having us, Governor,' Fred Kitchen called out, raising a glass to the boss, and there was a murmuring of, "'Hear, hear!' from the assembled multitude. "'You're all welcome, I'm sure. "'Now, as you know, I've been spending a good deal of time in this neck of woods "'since the houseboat was finished, "'and the time has come for me to tell you all what I have been up to.' "'He paused for dramatic effect, "'and then he spread his arms wide and smiled. "'The fact is,' I've bought this island. This bombshell didn't quite produce the sensation he was hoping for. Many of those present had been stealing themselves, I think, for him to announce his retirement, as he'd been so distracted lately. And now he'd bought an island. What did this mean for the fun factory? Everyone there depended upon Carno for their livelihood, except myself, of course. But then maybe I was about to be recalled to the ranks. And to a man and woman, they were all thinking, what is this going to mean for me? Actually, there was one spectator to this event with no particular stake in developments, and it was he who piped up to break the stunned silence. "'Whatever have you done that for, Fred?' said George Roby, still casually munching the last of an apple pie from his buffet luncheon platter. "'I plan to build here on Tang's Island a pleasure palace, such as you might find on the continent, a luxury hotel featuring the finest service, top-class West End entertainment, and a casino.' A casino, I blurted, then suddenly bit my tongue. What a daft thing to say. Don't get on the wrong side of him now. Hmm, the governor grunted, not best pleased to be interrupted. It will be the premier entertainment attraction in London, in England, in Europe, maybe even the world. This messianic announcement jolted the assembled throng into cheering and applause. So the hotel will be here, right here where we are standing now. And all the rest of the island, spreading away behind you there, will be given over to specially designed pleasure gardens, including no less than 200 yards of lawns. A spontaneous ooh went up from the crowd, many of whom turned to try to imagine the jungle of nettles and brambles behind us being tamed and transformed. As for the hotel itself, I'm having Mr Frank Matcham draw up some designs. But what we are planning is a grand ballroom over there, with a stage for a full orchestra, and the idea is to arrange things so that the proscenium arch is in the middle of the performance area, so that we can play both ways, into the ballroom, and also out onto the lawn on a warm evening. A smattering of sycophantic applause greeted this vision, and here and there, a wonderful and a fabulous were heard. The governor allowed a little smile to reach his lips. 
"'How are people going to get to this hotel, Fred, if you don't mind me asking?' George Roby chirped up. "'Are you not concerned that that old-timer with a rowboat could expire on the night of the grand opening?' There was laughter at this, and even Carno smiled. "'Arrangements will be made, of course,' he said, "'and on the opening night there will be dozens of ferry-boats, "'all piloted by beautiful young actresses.' little bout of nudging was evident then, as seasoned Carno hands imagined the recruiting process being supervised by the old goat himself, perhaps in the luxurious private apartments that had been glimpsed on the lower deck of the Astoria. "'And we'll have none of your German waiters. Every table will be waited upon by a top London comedian.' Carno actually winked at this, and the message was clear. "'I mean you lot.' "'Well, I thought, I'll cheerfully wash dishes all night long if it means getting back in your good books.' Sid Chaplin stepped forward then and said, "'It sounds fantastic. I can hardly wait. I'm sure I speak for everyone here when I say you can count on us for any help you require.' He looked around, and there was a sycophantic murmuring of agreement. "'And allow me to be the first to say, "'Congratulations! Another brilliant Carno idea!' Everyone started clapping and cheering and proposing toasts to the new venture. "'Thank you, thank you,' Carno said, stepping down from his little podium. "'Take a walk around, or return to the Astoria as you please. "'Both belong to me now. Afternoon tea at four. "'I tried to catch his eye, but he strode briskly away to attend to something on his boat, "'and I found myself chatting to good old George Roby as we ambled in his wake. "'So you mean to tell me you're not one of Fred's boys any longer?' he said, frowning. "'Well,' I said, thinking nervously of the conversation to come, "'hopefully that's just a temporary state of affairs. "'Let us hope so. Such a waste is not to be tolerated.' I told him about the drawings I'd done of him on the pavement in Trafalgar Square, and how he had fared in my rough, penny-based popularity contest. "'I should be very happy to give Marie best,' he said. "'Let battle be joined between me and the audience, not between me and the Queen. After all, are we not all brothers and sisters on the boards? Why should we squabble?' That struck me as the sort of view someone could freely take, when they'd already reached the very top of the profession. But still... <laughs> In the late afternoon, tea was served, and with a little flourish the governor turned on the strings of coloured light bulbs that were draped from the ironwork. It changed the atmosphere from that of a social gathering of work colleagues to a full-blown party, and it must have been a spectacular sight. It certainly caught the eye of one passerby anyway, as shortly afterwards we heard a foppish falsetto voice screaming hysterically from out on the water. Everyone moved to the rail to look, and so sturdy was the Astoria that it barely tilted. In midstream there was a fellow in white flannels with a lady reclining in his rowing boat. "'Oh, look at my lovely boat, everyone!' this caricature shouted, showing off to his companion. "'Look at my lovely boat! Look at all the lovely lights! Ha, ha, ha!' The two of them then dissolved into hysterical mocking laughter and pointing. Carno's face turned puce with fury. He gave a little cough, which acted subliminally on the central nervous system of everyone who had ever worked with him. We all turned to listen. "'This young snob,' he said, calmly but loud enough to carry above the scornful cackling, "'clearly finds us vulgar. Well, I say—' Here the great man paused and filled his lungs before letting loose a mighty roar. "'Let's show him vulgar!' He grasped the railing and thrust his chest out over it, giving himself the look of a lion protecting his territory, and then he unleashed the most violent flow of invective any of us had ever heard. Such crudeness, such oaths. The air turned blue. We all gaped for a few seconds. Then, with one will, we all turned and joined in, howling and screaming our rage at this idiot and his stupid girl. It was joyous. 
The toff's eyebrows shot up into his straw boater, and he began scrabbling around for his oars to propel his lady friend away from this savagery. She was trying to cover her ears and eyes at the same time, but didn't have enough hands to achieve this. One of the oars slipped from its rowlock and began to flow away from him, meaning he had to paddle frantically towards the Astoria to retrieve it. Freddy spotted that this brought the rowing boat within range of a decent throw, and knocked the fellow's hat askew with a cream scone. Others quickly followed suit, and before you knew it, there was a veritable hailstorm of pastries spattering down on the unhappy pair. Every heckle line, every abusive shout any of us had ever heard on stage was revisited here with gleeful venom. To my surprise, the aloof Charlie Chaplin was as carried away as anyone, clambering up the railings and leaning out to spit his Rabelaisian contempt at the interlopers. And further along, someone else, I couldn't quite see who, had dropped his trousers and stuck out his bare backside like a baboon. When Carno saw this, he raised his hands for quiet, and then led us in a choral salute of raspberries, which sustained as the rowing boat was carried miserably alongside, and then away downstream, with its occupants looking like they might never recover from the shock. Serve them right. The mood after this episode was one of the most glorious camaraderie, and spirits were high. For me, this was a bittersweet pleasure. I was really enjoying seeing everyone again, and realising how much I missed being part of a large team, with the daily pressures of constantly searching for employment lifted from my shoulders. Naturally, my thoughts turned to the prospect of once more calling myself a Carno comedian. Surely that was what the governor wanted to discuss, and I kept a weather-eye out for the opportunity to make myself available for whatever he had in mind. Of course, I thought, with a pang of regret, I knew that it would likely not be with the old company. Charlie would see to that, wanting to keep me away from Tilly, and not welcoming the sort of competition I could provide. But still, any Carno company anywhere would be a new start, a new chance to get a foot on the ladder, to show what I could do, and maybe one day in the not-too-distant future revive my ambition to be a number one in my own right. In the end I could wait no longer, and waylaid him on the top deck. "'You said you wanted a word, Governor,' I prompted. "'Yes, yes indeed. Let us find a little privacy, shall we? Somewhere where we won't be disturbed.' He led me down to the lower deck, bouncing a little drunkenly from side to side along the narrow corridor, and then pushed open a polished wooden door with gleaming brass handles. "'After you,' he said. I found myself in a luxuriously appointed bedroom, with a quite massive double bed which reached almost clear across the cabin. There was a surprising quantity of frills and flounces, and I wondered whether they were touches provided by Maria, the former chorus girl who had been passed off as Mrs. Carno for the last several years, or whether, just possibly, she'd never even set foot in the place. "'Sit yourself down,' Carno said. I perched on the edge of the monstrous item. There was nowhere else to sit, no room for a chair, and I tried not to think of what the old goat might have got up to amongst these white sheets and pillows. He himself sat down at the other end, and leaned over casually on one elbow, surrounded by cushions like some ancient potentate. "'So tell me this,' he said. "'How are things going for you?' "'Oh, pretty well,' I said, wary of appearing desperate. "'I can't complain.' "'Ah,' Garno said, his eyes narrowing beadily. "'So that weren't you I saw to the day, panhandling in Trafalgar Square?' He'd got me on the back foot there, and no mistake. "'Well, that,' I stammered, "'that is by way of being a sideline.' "'Is it?' "'Yes. Oh, yes. You see, I sometimes dabble, as you might say, "'do some quick pictures for the fellows there, "'and they give me a cut of whatever they take in. "'I can make a pretty packet on a good day.' "'Really?' "'Um, <laughs> yes. Oh, yes.' <laughs> Carno paused, inspected his fingernails. "'So you wouldn't be interested, then, in an offer of work?' "'Oh, well, what sort of an offer, Governor?' 
"'I think I could see my way to finding a place for you. "'Oh, that would be marked under certain conditions.' "'Conditions, Governor? "'Yes, you know the sort of thing. "'You scratch my back, I scratch yours.' "'Perched as we were on his large and flancy bed, "'my mind leapt rapidly to some uncomfortable conclusions. "'I glanced upwards and caught sight of his reflection "'in a large mirror bolted to the low ceiling. "'What sort of scratching do you have in mind?' "'Well, let me see now,' Carno tapped his lips with his forefinger. "'Freddy tells me that you are currently residing at the same address as my wife. "'Is that not so?' "'Now I had it. "'With a flash like a bolt of lightning, all my hopes came crashing down upon my head. "'I knew exactly where this conversation was headed. "'It is,' I sighed. "'She has been most kind. "'Very cosy, I must say.' "'He coughed his trademark little cough. "'So what I propose is this.' "'Simple, really. You come back to work for me. Perhaps even a small raise, eh? What do you say? And then at some point in near future, my lawyer will call you as a witness in a little divorce action that I shall be bringing, and everybody wins.' I said nothing. "'You don't need to say out now. Just present yourself up at Fun Factory, and we'll see what can be done with you, eh?' He coughed again, and awkwardly pushed himself up from the cushions. "'Well, I'd best be getting back to my guests,' he said. "'So?' Right, I said. Yes. Thank you, Governor. Somehow I dragged my leaden feet out of there, and I kept going as if in a trance, off the boat and along the path to where the old codger was waiting to row people across. As we eased away, the Astoria twinkled like some fantastical wonderland, like Camelot, with those who, like Freddie Jr., had been afforded an invitation to stay the night in one of the magnificent staterooms on the lower deck, still laughing and drinking and chatting away under the lights and waiting for dinner to be served in the magnificent wood-panelled dining room below. A champagne cork popped and then plopped lightly into the river behind me. A chill swept suddenly along the surface of the water, and I pulled my jacket close around me, turning up the collar. I would have to leave Edith Carno's house in the morning, that much was clear. I would have to tell her why as well, as I could hardly let her think she'd done anything wrong, or been anything other than a good friend to me. Of course, Carno's lawyer would be swift to paint her kindness in offering me a roof over my head, as moral turpitude, to use the governor's own phrase, and our innocent friendship as living in sin. And Carno had seen me working in Trafalgar Square, evidently, even though I had not spotted him, so he would know where to find me, which meant that I would even have to give up that meagre source of income. Sitting there, bawling my fists impotently, thinking of Carno's self-serving and manipulative offer, well, it made my gorge rise. If that's what it takes to make it in the comedy business, I thought, you can keep it. It is not worth the candle. And there and then in the middle of the River Thames, with the ancient mariner's old joints creaking away in time with his gurning and wheezing, I retired. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.